When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network podcast on How to Be Wrong, hosted by John Cog and myself, John Trapagan. The other John's not available today, so I'm going to be going solo on our journey into the nature and experience of intellectual humility and the value of getting it wrong. Today, I am really delighted to have as our guest Dr. Ken Weijin, who is a geophysicist and associate director in the Environmental Division of the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, where I also happen to work. Previously, uh, Ken was a senior state executive responsible for disaster recovery, oil spill prevention and response, and coastal infrastructure and environmental protection for Texas. And as an officer in the United States Air Force, Major General Weijin participated or led military disaster response efforts for the Shuttle Columbia crash and multiple hurricanes. He also flew as a bombardier in B-52s and many other aircraft and is a graduate of the United States Air Force Test Pilot School. Ken, it's great to have you on How to Be Wrong. Uh, It's a a pleasure, John. Uh, I think uh, the approach to the questions y'all ask is really refreshing and original, so I'm looking forward to diving into this. Uh, me too. It should be a fun conversation. So I'd like to begin uh, just by asking you if you could t- tell us a little bit about, you know, you've got a, a pretty in- interesting uh, background. I have not run into too many uh, doctor major generals before. Um, and so I'd like to know a little bit about kind of how you, you know, took the path you took and, and um, you know, sort of you've had a variety of different kinds of leadership roles in the military and education and government and I'm curious, you know, has your career followed kind of a straight path? Have you had a circuitous route? So, you know, you just tell us a bit about that. Uh, sure. That, that That's a lot of questions there. There's a, I, I call it, I call my career path kind of a random walk or a brownie in motion kind of thing. I never had a plan as such beyond very general terms of I, I wanted to be a scientist and I wanted to be a military flyer. And I bounced around between the two for my whole career, but it was really driven initially growing up, uh, getting into science fiction and just loving science fiction along with military history. And I've constantly bounced back and forth between the two ever since my, my professional career started in the air force. I I was here at university of Texas. I was an undergraduate physics major and in ROTC and I was going to be a scientist in the Air Force till my senior year when I just said, no, I got to fly and switched over to a, a flying slot. 
I was already wearing glasses at that time, so I didn't become a pilot. I became a, a navigator and bombardier. Ended up spending uh, 30, 30 years in the cockpit out of 33 total years in the military, which is uh, also a fairly neat thing. Participated in three wars, did all kinds of interesting flying. And, uh, you know, kind of surprised myself at the end by popping out the top as a, as a major, major general. But uh, we can get into into some of those aspects later. And then after that, I, I wanted to get back into science. I'd gotten my Ph.D. while I was in uh, the military. I kind of bounced back and forth also between full-time military and part-time military. I did my Ph.D. back in the early 90s uh, and flew part-time for the military. Then uh, after a while, I just, I realized I couldn't be as good at both careers at the same time as I wanted to be. So I went back to full-time military to finish my career. Once I was done with that in 2015, started trying to find my way back into the academic world, which wasn't terribly easy, but eventually did. And now I'm, I'm happily being uh, a scientist. Yeah, it's, it's actually very interesting that you, you raise sort of the, the lack of a plan. And I, I think it's interesting that people often look at, you know, very successful people like yourself. I mean, there aren't a whole lot of major generals in the world and you have a PhD. I think people tend to assume, oh, well, there must have been a plan, you know, that, that you were aiming at something. And uh, often that's not the case. Uh, it's just kind of things go where they go. No, and, and a lot of people do plan that. But I personally feel like if you start out young in life, <clears throat> whatever, you know, if you're in the military, the people I've seen who as junior officers in the military have their life goals set on becoming a general often end up bitter and burnt out. Uh, I always concentrated whether in any area on doing the job I'm in as best as I can and doors of opportunity always opened as a result of that. Yeah, that's how I've always looked at it too. I've never really known where I'm going, but it seems that if I sort of stay focused on the present, what I'm doing, a lot of interesting things happen, and I certainly never imagined I'd be doing what I do right now. But it just mm-hmm. uh, kind of that's the way it went. And and, uh, and and concentrating on having fun, you know. I've seen I know a lot of people that are in jobs they don't really like because they feel they're supposed to be there. I've I've turned down positions that most people would go, oh, how, why'd you do that? Yeah, because I it wasn't what I was interested in. You you have to love what you're doing to put in the hard work to be good at it without just getting burned out. Yeah. Fun is a really important component of it. And if it isn't fun, the, you know, whatever you get out of it doesn't last that long in my view. No, in fact, uh, I've always enjoyed, especially when I was in uniform, uh, telling people as a Colonel and as a general in the upper ranks, my three priorities were always, or my yeah priorities were, uh, Take care of people and get the mission done. That's line number one. You have to keep those balanced. A lot of people put one above the other. Two, be safe. Even in combat, there's still safety rules. They may be a little looser, but they're still there. But the third thing, which usually surprised people, is have fun. You know, if you don't look forward to coming into work, at least most days, uh, do something about it. Inject some fun in, into the place. Yeah, I think... Um... It, fun and, and humor is an important component of things as well. You, have to, <laughs> yes. you have to be able to laugh at things. And a lot of people can't, particularly people have a hard time laughing at themselves. Um, 
So you know, given your background, I, I'm going to guess um, that you've had more than a few of experience, a few experiences with things that have gone wrong or not the way really were planned. So I was wondering if you could, you know, share maybe uh, an example, an interesting example of this uh, with our audience. I'm curious how you might think assumptions or preconceived ideas contributed to the problem and, and how does this relate to, you know, how we engage in leadership? Oh, yes. Uh, there's, there's a lot of examples I could pull out. Uh, we'll, we'll see where this goes, but I'll give you an example uh, in my own case, and I've got more I can draw on. Uh, I've certainly uh, made errors or screwed things up uh, multiple times. Fortunately, never got anyone hurt from that. But uh, one of the one of the ones that sticks out in my mind is as a uh, a fairly new uh, bombardier in B-52s. In, in that aircraft, it's a bomber. It has two pilots, two navigators, a gunner, and electronic warfare officer. At least it did back when I flew them. The, the two navigators are much like pilot and co-pilot. You start off in the junior position in the right side. You move to a senior position in the left side. I had upgraded to the left side, which is kind of the bombardier position. The most dangerous time for most flyers is six months after a year after you're checked out in a new position. Because at that point, you're starting to think, yeah, I know what I'm doing. I'm good. And I was in that position about six months after getting checked out. We were on a normal training run over the center of the U.S. You know, I think it was up in, yes, it was up in Nebraska doing a bomb run that I'd done many times before. But, you know, I'd gone, I, you know, you have to do certain things you have to practice a certain number of times without some of your equipment. I said, yeah, you know, I, I'm good. I'm going to turn off this piece, this piece, and this piece, and I'm still going to do the bomb run. Well, I got thoroughly lost over the center of Nebraska <laughs> in a training mission. It was highly embarrassing. I had to ask the electronic war officer to jam the scoring site so, so we wouldn't get a bad score as a crew. And, you know, that kind of brought me to, back down to earth and uh, made me quite humble and was a valuable lesson on uh, not getting overconfident. So I thought that was a big one. I've had, have had others. Another one that stands out in my mind as a lesson learned as much as being an error. Uh, let me back up a little bit. Again, being a, a, a science fiction nerd and a geek, I was always interested in the space program. Uh, I was stationed at Edwards Air Force Base, California for a number of years, and that's where the shuttle used to land regularly. In fact, at, at my house on base, you could hear the double sonic boom of it coming back in and turn on the TV and you'd be able to see it landing in a few minutes. You got used to that. I was also a finalist for astronaut in the 90s. Uh, I had to pull out of it because I was a single parent at the time and couldn't swing the workload. But I, there people around me, uh, before me and after me and in my class at test pilot school became astronauts. Test pilot school is kind of a fighter uh, astronaut lead-in program. So the bottom line is I'm fairly familiar with the, the shuttle, its re-entry and all that. Well, the shuttle Columbia, I forgot what year it was, coming back in over the U.S., I knew it was coming overhead. And I actually turned on and watched it on TV, if I remember right. And I remember seeing the trail of it looked not right. I knew immediately something didn't look right in that. And so I 
basically headed into my unit, which is in Fort Worth. Uh, it's a C-130 transport unit. And by the time I got there, there were a couple other people arriving who kind of sensed that something was wrong. And pretty soon the phone rang from Washington, D.C. saying, get up in the air, get over East Texas and start doing a search and rescue because the shuttle Columbia had broken up over Texas. And my first question was, okay, who's, who, uh, what's the fund site for this? Who's paying for this? Which I was deeply conditioned into doing. You never fly a military aircraft without knowing the authorization, who's paying for it, all that, because technically it's a felony to do that. Uh, they didn't have an immediate answer. I don't remember exactly what it was. Uh, but uh, I called up my higher commander, the wing commander, said, look, here's what's happening. I'm getting told this. What should I do? He said, basically, get your rear end up in the air. Uh, and we got up there and we were the first aircraft on site along with a couple of fighters that joined us almost the same time, spotting the little smoke trails coming up all over East Texas. But I never forgot after that, you know, sometimes you just have to, make the call and take the risk and go. And I've never hesitated since then to go, look, I'll do this on my authority. It, it, it's okay if I lose my job. If I'm confident it's the right thing to do, I'm going to do it. And so, and, you know, it's, it's kind of a mistake. Uh, it didn't make a difference in that case, but it was a valuable, valuable lesson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I suppose, you know, had things been a little bit different, it, it could have been a difference between life and death of somebody that was on the shuttle. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, but that's a hard thing to do because, you know, we tend to live inside of the, the framework of the rules that are set for us. Um, and it's, it's hard to know when the right moment is to push through those and say, okay, I've I've just got to go and do this thing I have to, that has to be done. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's on an organizational level. It, It involved multiple people. I had a similar lesson just for my own that stuck with me from early in my training also as a B-52 navigator bombardier, uh, it's the only aircraft in the inventory that has ejection seats that shoot out the bottom of the aircraft for the two navigators. What that means is, uh, whereas the rest of the crew can safely eject, even if you're on the runway at high speed, if the navigators eject, you basically punch into the ground right in front of the main wheels, which isn't a good thing. So, uh, I had very wise, older, uh, more experienced flyers tell me, you've got to make your own decision there. If the plane gets into a bad situation, you have to decide when to leave, even though the technical procedure is you ask the pilot for permission to eject, and then if he says yes, you eject. I resolved in my mind that if it ever came to that, uh, that recall to eject was just a courtesy call because that meant I was on my way out uh, because I have less time to react than anyone else. And that was another one of those key decision points where I, it actually translated into the t- integrity side of my thinking, even though it was a physical decision. Somehow that morphed into a resolve that, you know, I'd never sacrificed my integrity. I'm quite willing to leave my career behind in my wings if it came to that. So that brings me to a question about, you know, how this intersects with with how we function as leaders. And, you know, obviously you've had enormous experience as a leader and I'm curious, you know, how, how do you think these experiences that, you know, where things did go wrong or 
at least forced you to think about what would happen if things go wrong. How do you think they shaped your, um, you know, your development in terms of your career as an officer and ultimately, you know, being in leadership positions in the Air Force or, or elsewhere? Yes. Well, they're, they're pivotal, pivotal things. I mean, the fact that they're still vibrant in my memory today after 20 plus years in some cases shows their emotional impact on you. And I'd imagine that's the same for everybody. You can study all you want. You can read about leadership. Practicing it makes the difference. And it's a continual journey. I still learn new things about leadership, mostly from practice on a regular basis, even at at, uh, my advanced age. It's you never stop. And someone who stops learning is a, is a problem, really. So, yeah, they're, they're pivotal moments. They kind of shock you into, into an awareness, a self-awareness frequently that's, that's key. That's missing in a lot of folks. So it's that experiential learning, like most things, that really drives home the point. Now, on leadership, I still do a lot of reading and reading case studies, history, that kind of thing is very helpful and important for development. But if that's all you ever do and you never put it into practice, uh, then that's a problem. And within that context, also, you need room to learn, to make errors. Uh, That's an important thing. I'd be happy to go into that. But, you know, one mistake organization, one mistake organization uh, will fail mm-hmm. due to people being risk averse, not adapting and, and such. In fact, some of the world events these days are kind of showing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the, um, one of the things that, you know, comes up is it was interesting as you were talking, I was thinking about the, the, the value in being humbled is that it, it really forces you to, you know, kind of think about, all right, were there different ways I could have deal, dealt with this? And what do I do when I'm, you know, facing this kind of problem in a position when I'm leading um, or, you know, someone else winds up being humbled? It, it sort of sets a trajectory. Um, but if you only if you only focus on sort of the reading side of things and you don't get out there and have that practical experience, in some ways you never really get humbled. You just learn a whole lot of stuff and think you know a whole lot of stuff. True, true. Uh you know, everyone needs role models, and and mine tend to be uh, those less flashy, quiet leaders. You know, uh, and there are examples of them in the military. And that's since having spent thirty three years of my life in the military, that's still kind of my dominant area that I think of in these terms of leadership. Although, you know, it's been interesting to get into the academic world and see that there. I'd also seen it before in, in the medicine world, for instance, where there's uh, a lot of overconfidence. You know, you have very intelligent people, but people who've never been trained or practiced at leadership. And suddenly you're in a leadership position and you find out that just raw smarts isn't a good guy yes. to success. Yeah. Yeah, a long time ago, you and I were chatting, and and you said something to me that has always stuck with me as being quite interesting. We were, I don't remember exactly what the topic was, but um, I made a comment about you know sort of giving orders, and I think you said something along the lines of of you know as an officer, you had only given orders a couple of times in your whole career, 
along the lines of you must do this sort of thing. And I thought that was really intriguing because it's very different from the, the stereotype and image, of course, we have of the military. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and, you know, why was that the case and, and, and how do you think about that? Sure. Yes. Well, let me first preface that with uh, different parts of the military have very different cultures. I came from the Air Force, which is the most collegial, I would say, of the services. And it's a, a, for, for very valid reasons. The Army is a much more uh, forceful command organization uh, when you've got to order people to take that hill kind of thing. Uh, the Air Force structure, I think, comes back to the fact that the frontline shooters in the Air Force are the officers, all the way up through colonel and sometimes general. Uh, myself, as a, as a full colonel, which is one step below general, was still flying regular combat missions, flying the line. So you have this collection of educated officers, each given an aircraft, to do a mission, and it's a lot more of a cooperative thing. But that extends throughout the culture in general terms with, with some variations. So that that background plus the background of Hollywood gives you a gross misconception of military leadership. Uh, you know, there are people that are, that are kind of like that, the fire-breathing role. Uh, they sometimes make the top levels. They don't. Well, there, it gets complicated on there. There's, uh, there's definite drawbacks to it. But having said that, I, I'm trying to think. I, I was never forcefully given an order in my entire career of something I didn't want to do. If you're well-trained and educated, you lay out the objectives and what needs to be done, and everyone knows that's what needs to be done. Uh, so... In actuality, in my career, I only had to give a forceful order one time. Uh, and that was not in combat. I was in three wars, but I, everyone knows what you're doing. You have the mission, you give it out, everyone studies. You, there's That's just the way it is. The one time I did was during a hurricane response here in Texas with one of, uh, one of my forward units that was charged with uh, essentially riding out the storm as close as they could to an airfield so that once the storm was passed, they could go in, open up the airfield and get relief supplies flying in and out. Well, they were assigned to shelter in a National Guard Armory that was rated to hurricane level two or so, I think, which was more than enough for where it was. But they were the, the leader of that organization was uh, was uh, hesitant to stay there. The, uh, the windows were already rattling and such. Uh, he wanted to bug out farther, and I said, "Yeah, I said no. Your job is stay there. The building is rated safe. Now, if you really feel like you are unsafe, I I would never overrule a commander on the spot. If he had decided, yeah, you know, it's falling down, we got to get out of here, I would have backed him. But I I told him pretty forcefully that look, this is your job. Here's the conditions. It's been sorted out. You've got to stay there. And he did." come around to seeing it that way and everyone was fine. And then they were able to do their job once the storm has passed. But that's the only time I did that. Uh, and in my career, like I said, I was never given a situation like that, that I didn't already know what, that I needed to do it. 
I was only yelled at once in my career, and frankly, I deserved it that time. <laughs> what did you uh, do? No, 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 no. Uh, <laughs> Not going to tell us that. Huh? <laughs> no, no. no. Uh, I, I deserved it. It was yeah. it was after a, a, a night of a of a wild squadron party where everyone was in trouble. <laughs> okay. It was a long time ago, too. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, you know, well, yeah, when you have a bunch of young twenty somethings. Uh, Sometimes common sense doesn't prevail. In fact, it's amazing, uh, you know, that I'm still here. When you give five young 20-somethings the, the keys to a nuclear bomber and say, you know, go out and fly this around the world or something, it's just stunning we didn't have more uh, crashes. I, I never really thought of it that way before, but that's actually a very frightening thought when you when you raise it quite that way. That uh, I, I assume that... Um, there are some. Are there usually someone older than a twenty-something on, a, on a, a nuclear bomber? I would hope. Well, that's a very good leadership thing. This is isn't into mistakes, but one of the best things I ever saw. Active duty crew force is a pretty young crew force. It is mostly twenty-somethings with a sprink, you know, typically in a squadron, a few thirty-somethings and one or two forty-somethings at the top of a squadron. So the flyers are pretty young and in the national guard, they're significantly more experienced, but active duties where the bombers were. And occasionally you get an all Lieutenant crew just because there's not enough captains to go around. So, you know, Lieutenant is between 21 and maybe 24. And sure enough, at one point I was on a all Lieutenant crew, the squadron commander, did a brilliant thing. What he did was he assigned the senior most gunner in the squadron and the gunners were enlisted. So sergeants outranked by every Lieutenant on the crew, but you put the senior most sergeant on that crew as the leveling influence as the adult supervision. And the senior sergeant was probably late thirties. And, you know, unless you're a complete idiot, when a senior sergeant, kind of says, hey, Lieutenant, what about this? Or did you consider this? You will listen to them and they'll keep you out of trouble, both in the air and on the ground. And then later on, when I became, you know, a squadron and group level commander, I did exactly the same thing. It's one of the most brilliant things around to put that senior enlisted person on a crew of officers to kind of be the adult supervision. That's fascinating, and it, and it actually really comes around to this, this sort of question of, of humility and, and kind of intellectual humility in the sense that, you know, if you think strictly in terms of rank, well, the lieutenants outrank that, that sergeant, right? Um, but if you think about experience and, and then factor that in, then it's a very different kind of calculation. It's a different way to think about things, and it and it. You know, that's I, a very good point. I, I've never mm-hmm. thought of it expressly in terms of humility, but you're spot on on that. Yeah, I think it's. It, I mean, it's intriguing because it, it it really says, all right, you know, I'm I'm literally higher status than this guy, and yet we we've got to we've got to focus on a different way of thinking about things in terms of of emphasizing experience because when it comes to experience, that sergeant is really much higher status than a lieutenant, regardless of of the rank. Um, that's just, yes. that's, that's intriguing. You know, in the medical world, it might be a nurse versus a brand new uh, doctor. Mm-hmm. You know, the same situation can arise. So uh, I would imagine it can occur in, in most fields. 
So do you know? Do you think lieutenants would ever get pissed off by something like that? Oh yes. I mean, I mean, some just didn't have the common sense to listen in situations like that. But even if you're smart, at first you might have a kind of a knee jerk reaction in opposition. But again, you know, the, a smart person will go, "Oh wait, wait a minute, what am I doing here?" You know, the alarm bell should ring in the back of your head. And, and frankly, in most of your training, and I think this applies to all the military services, your drum it's drummed into you pretty hard to listen to that senior enlisted person because they have that wisdom and experience. Yeah, and I think it, it also points out, you know, use the word being, you talked about being educated, but that does not mean having sat in a classroom with books. Um, no, it, no. It, 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 it means it can mean that. But, you know, the, the lieutenant who has gotten a college degree and, you know, went through ROTC and all that, that, that individual knows quite a bit. But that's not the same kind of education as that sergeant who's been out there doing this. Correct. Uh, think of it like a uh, engineering professor working on a car versus. <laughs> yeah. Who, they can be quite dangerous. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and <laughs> oh, I know how this works in theory. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and I think that's also that's that's where we easily kind of get into this. Uh, you know, we have a kind of the the status hierarchies of our society tend to lead us to think that we ought to be in a position of, of authority or power, even if we don't actually necessarily have the corresponding knowledge that should put us in that position. If we have the title, we sort of deserve it. Yes, a lot of people think they have to act. In, in a leadership role, I think. Uh, they can't admit an error. And again, you see that all around you all the time. But, but that's false. I mean, one of, the, one of the, I think, the most sincere things you can do is admit you're wrong as a leader. And I've done that. Uh, you know, if you're repeating the same errors, then that's a problem. And if you're wrong, you know, very frequently, that's a problem. But showing that you will listen and your mind is open to changing your conceptions, I think is absolutely critical. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's it's critical to leadership. I think it's critical to just living, basically. Um, it, it's And also being open to, you know, people who are, quote unquote, insubordinate positions. Um, or in positions where they have, you know, lower rank or something like that to, to sort of be able to remove the status hierarchy. And, you know, the military is fascinating because there's a very clear cut status hierarchy. Um, but to be able to remove that and say, no, this person actually, he knows better than I do about this. Yes. And it, and it's not about formal leadership positions either. You know, some of the best leaders are behind the scenes leaders who don't have a position of authority, but they motivate people. They get people moving in the right direction. So, you know, an organization being successful isn't just about the leader. It's about the entire organization, the entire culture, and how everyone combines. Yeah, and, and so this, this kind of brings me around to in my, my next question I wanted to kind of dive into. And, and early on in this podcast, we... we the issues of politics have come up a little bit, but we haven't really gone too far in, into them. But I have found that with the current situation in Ukraine, I keep thinking a lot about this question of intellectual humility and and humility in general. 
And and I'm I'm curious, you know, how how do you think um, embracing a more humble approach to leadership, for example, might influence the ways we approach political conflict, you know, as a planet or as a you know just the United States when we have all of these different political, cultural, religious groups and everything um, engaged in you know trying to deal with each other, and of course. I think you have a unique position because you've actually been in conflict. You've been in, in battle and, you know, seen first, you know, right up front, what happens when these groups come into, you know, military conflict. So I'm curious what you think about that. Hmm. Yes. Well, first of all, it, it, maybe it's to some degree always been this way, but it feels like no one, in a public position is allowed to admit they were wrong or to change their minds. Uh, and the polarization is just off the scale. You know, here in the U S if you reach towards the middle from either side, you're not going to get blasted from across the aisle. You're going to get blasted from behind from your own party. That's, that's, that's not good for the future. Uh, so there is there is that aspect of it. This may be a little tangential, but uh, I occasionally speak or, or teach leadership. And one of the things I always bring up is one of my favorite books, uh, The History of the Peloponnesian War by Thucydides. This was written, you can probably tell me better than I can remember, but somewhere in the 300 BCs, I believe. It's one of the earliest. Okay, well, it's one of the earliest works of history and especially of accurate military history um, and military and political history. If you read Thucydides, then what you will see is over the maximum span of recorded human history, nothing about politics, warfare, or human nature has changed. And I think that is a very enlightening perspective to have. Yes, our culture changes a lot. Our technology changes. Uh, but those human failings, biologically, we haven't changed a bit in many, many thousands of years. So, you know, that realization that nothing about these human natures, and that gets back to leadership and such, has changed. And I, I just think that's a very grounding perspective when you're looking around the modern world, looking at, well, how can I be a good leader? What is humility and all that? Uh, It's not a perfect guide from the ancients, and there's very good modern research that illuminates key questions more, but it's a great place to start and ground yourself. So uh, why do you think that's the case. Do you think it's it's our biology? And I, the one thing that, that struck me as you were saying it is I was thinking, and all of that history has largely been run by men fighting wars, which is kind of interesting too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I mean, do you think it's just something we, we can't seem to shake? Ooh. Uh, I, it's just opinion and guesswork. But, you know, we are still physiological, biochemical beings. And again, you can look at the DNA sequences. We haven't changed. We have not evolved in that time. We're healthier. We have education. We have other things. But 
that hardwiring hasn't changed, and it is still a significant driver uh, that can't be ignored. So, you know, aggression, unfortunately, uh, competition, xenophobia appear to be uh, even maybe more basic than than Homo sapiens. It might be basic to uh, a more fundamental level of life, and life everywhere does seem to be essentially infinitely competitive. Now, hopefully, you know, we are, there is some evidence that we are slowly becoming a less violent world to, you know, current news uh, notwithstanding. But if you average it up, it it looks that way. But uh, those, those things don't change. And your brain will trick you into thinking you're much more logical than you are. One of my other favorite books is uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by uh, Daniel Kahneman. He's a psychologist who won Nobel in economics. I think much to the annoyance of economists, but uh, but he has an excellent book. It's it's over a decade old now, but it's still qu- quite good. That really goes into detail on explaining how your the different parts of your brain will serve up things to your consciousness that seem perfectly rational, but are very definitely not. And I think it's a a good enlightening book for, again, starting that basic self-awareness of, oh, maybe I should look at how I think a little more because I'm probably making judgment calls that aren't nearly as factual as I think. So would you, you've used the term self-awareness a couple of times. Would would you equate that with, say, intellectual humility? Do you think those two things are connected? I definitely do. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you are self-aware, at, and no one's perfectly self-aware by, by any means. But if you do put time, energy, and effort into developing that, I think you can't help, but I think it correlates very closely with humility. They're not completely uh, congruent, but I think there's a pretty strong overlap there. Yeah, I agree. I think that the you know a degree of self-reflexiveness, being able to look at oneself and say, hmm, I didn't think of that the right way, or I didn't do that the right way, or these are my assumptions that seem to be aiming me in a particular way. I think it that's the starting point. Yeah, yeah it go goes ahead. back to some very old quotes. Uh, mm-hmm. Know thyself is a great yeah. one. Yep. And the unexamined life is not worth living. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it's really uh, not exactly rocket science. <laughs> We've known humans have known this for a long time. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We just struggle. We struggle with being able to somehow put it into action. Um, yeah, you know the the role of myth in developing self awareness. I think is fascinating too. Uh, a whole separate conversation. But uh, you know, how do you acculturate uh, people who are becoming adults? Those kinds of things. Uh, there's a lot of wisdom in the old ways. There's a lot of problems in that are rooted in in deep old cultures and no culture is perfect by any means. Almost every culture has had slavery at some point in its past. So, you know, the past, I, I, I use the past as informative, but it shouldn't be a straitjacket. The same as people who study military history, you study campaigns, not so that you can repeat them, but so that you can draw little bits from here and there that will help you in a current situation. Yeah. And I think it's true. Myth uh, and storytelling in general can have a really profound impact. I've thought a lot about that in relation to uh, 
I'm a Star Trek fan. I, I love Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Oh, me too. Yeah, and, I, can, and I, can, I can. I'm doing the Vulcan uh, uh, welcome hand sign right now. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And and but you know, I grew up during Apollo and Star mm-hmm. Trek. And mm-hmm. as I look back, I realize how much kind of the combination of those things shaped, you know, the mythology of Star Trek, sort of the future mythology, shaped my way of thinking of how I thought humanity should be. Um, and I, I carry that with me to this day. I still, you know, kind of the Federation is sort of, you know, and of course there are a lot of people who have written, um, you know, arguments that the Federation is just an extension of neoliberalism and this kind of thing. But there's something about that way of looking at the world that has very much, um, it, it powerfully shaped the way I see things. I, I agree completely. I'm from the same generation. I grew up with the same things. I can remember my folks waking me up during the middle of the night to watch the fuzzy image of Neil Armstrong step out on the moon. I watched the the Star Trek, the, the original Star Trek in reruns. I probably watched every one of those two dozen times. And by the way, as a real geek, uh, Spock was my hero, not Kirk. Mine too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it, it does it does shape things now. And interestingly, yeah. Gene Roddenberry, uh, who had a very you know idealistic utopian view, and that's the way he structured the Federation, uh, was a World War II bomber pilot. He saw some of the worst of humanity. So uh, you know, it's interesting to speculate about how that shaped his kind of swing towards the idealism side and. You know, even the Star Trek franchise has gotten a little bit more gritty over the years and a little less pristine in its idealism. I still love it and Star Wars, and I still read science fiction on a monthly basis. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same way, and, and I'm entirely hooked on on Discovery and Picard and all of the other things. And, so, and, and um, as a scientist, I look at science fiction as being a very clear thought leader, Uh as a scientist uh, in working on uh, search for extraterrestrial intelligence and space exploration, there's no idea that probably hasn't been very well explored by a science fiction writer already. So that, you know, on any new area in that vein, I go there first uh, as basic research. Yeah, it makes sense it, it, because there's, there's creativity there. And that, that creativity, of course, it's also creativity that kind of goes out of the box. Again, back to that kind of issue of humility. One of the things we tend to do is we get confined by our boxes that we live in. And people who write science fiction, they push out of those boxes. And, and that can really cause us to think in new ways. Yeah. So let me ask you a question. I'm, I'm curious, you know, a little shift here. But, um, you know, having had the long career in the military, um, I, I'm curious what you think organizations outside of the military might learn about how the military handles errors and problems. And, and you know, I'm thinking here about miscalculations from, say, a strategic perspective. Um, you know, military planners and stat- strategists obviously don't always get it right. Um, and, and so, you know, what kinds of attitudes and ideas do you think contribute to getting things wrong in, in those areas? And, and what might we learn from that? Ooh, that's a rich area to dive into. Uh, let me think here. So, first of all, uh, it, it's it's been kind of interesting to, for me to watch this. There's a very healthy cross flow between uh, business academics and meter, uh, military 
uh, leadership academics. And each one tends to look at the other for new ideas and new perspectives. So in the military, I read a lot of business leadership stuff in my professional military education. And having also been in the civilian academic world, I've seen that it kind of flips around to some degree in the business schools that, that do look at, and in the business you know, leadership uh, publishing industry, there's a lot of looking towards the military. So it's kind of interesting how that goes back and forth. There are the, the U.S. military I can, I can speak relatively well for in that it, it works very hard to not fight the last war, which is very easy to do in military circumstances. Uh, it's not easy. Well, typically a military, when it comes out of a war, winning or losing, looks at that experience and you know, adjusts for what it learned there and then kind of sets it in stone. But the problem is military in the military, like in anything, you have to keep evolving, keep reinventing yourself, or as opposed to your business failing, your country ends or a lot of people die. So the stakes are a little bit higher. But, uh, and I think this is true of many militaries nowadays, but the U.S. in particular that I know best works very hard at trying to what if the future and scenario war game things uh, to not get stuck in that box. It's not easy to do. And you still very easily fall back into that. Oh, but this worked last time. We'll just do that again. And again, I think you're seeing some of that play out in the, in the world today right now. So there's that aspect of, of a very conscious effort that's spread out throughout to try to try to do that. In the business world, I think the analogy is the startups or companies that form a little subgroup that's allowed to make errors to not turn a profit immediately so that it can experiment. Some of the most successful companies, as I understand, uh, on the more technical side, encourage their employees to spend anywhere from 5 to 20% of their time on creative thinking on something they want to work on, not what the company's telling them to do. In the military, that's a little harder to do, but where I've been able to, I try to carve out innovation space and space to be wrong uh, because you, you absolutely have to have room to fail. And that's what training and education and uh, professional education should do. One of the most valuable kind of learning experiences I got uh, was in In a flying organization, you typically deploy places at different times of the year to practice practice just that. Oh, we're going to practice the equivalent of going to a new country, setting up a base from scratch, and flying out of there. And you do that all the time in training. Well, you typically don't send your squadron commanders there. You, You pick someone who doesn't have a current command position but has promise, and you give them command of that deployment. So you're giving them a fixed scope in time and space and resources to essentially be a leader and exercise pretty much the entire skill set. Now, frequently you'll put someone else nearby who is a more experienced leader, but not in charge of that operation, but someone who can just kind of keep an eye, make sure they stay in bounds, that kind of thing. And so again, I think it comes back to a mixture of, and by the time you've gotten there, you have done a lot of study. 
So I, I don't want to say don't do study, don't do book study, whatever it is that works for you, whether it's watching movies that have great leadership examples or bad ones, you can learn just as much from bad as good, uh, or it's reading or whatever works for you. But I, I don't want to degrade the advanced study, but then you put it into practice in a fairly controlled, but fairly, uh, fairly responsible position. Those were great experiences for me in uh, developing the ability to make decisions, to have a reasonable amount of confidence without being overconfident. Those kinds of, of things uh, I think are, are really good and transfer well. And then the last thing I'll mention, which exists formally in the Army side, a little less formally in the uh, air side, but red teaming. And what red teaming is, is it's a little subgroup, typically in a headquarters staff, whose job is to essentially play devil's advocate on everything. They're there to play the enemy, to poke holes in your plans, your theories, all of that. And I think that's just very, very healthy to do. I don't know if that exists in the business world. I'm pretty confident it doesn't exist in the academic world. Oh, no. Uh, but boy, is that high payoff for having a, a handful of, of uh, personnel working on that kind of uh, that kind of thing. And you know, one one last little tidbit, another one of those old sayings that has a lot of power: no plan survives contact with the enemy. Uh, you know, again, if if you're overconfident, uh, you're gonna meet with failure. Uh, you have to uh, you have to plan. I think it's Eisenhower said. Uh, planning is everything, but the plan is nothing or something close to that. You've got a plan so that you can kind of think it through, but you can't be hidebound by it. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. You know, the, the idea of the red teaming, it's, it's basically building into the structure of the organization a sense that you need to have gadflies that undermine everything so that you can see the sort of the, the flashpoints where things might go wrong. Um, and uh, you definitely don't see that in the academic world. I, I think often gadflies in the academic world are, are looked at pretty badly by administrators because they seem to get in the way. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I know. I by no means is the military or DoD perfect. I could do a multi-hour rant on the problems we have and the flaws, and it does come out. And there are some great historical examples of major war game exercises where, you know the good guys got their rear ends cooked, kicked really hard because the guy playing the enemy thought of something really creative. And then the higher up say, well, no, you can't do that. That's not allowed. Well, that's not a wise thing to do. And I, I, it's, it's a rarity, but boy, there are some very famous cases internally to the military about that happening as examples of how, how to be closed minded and, and arrogant. Yeah. And, and once you take that position, then you're basically closing the doors to the unexpected. You're basically saying so. only the expected is what can come, and, and you're pretty much screwed at that point. Um, yeah. yeah, most def- most definitely, yes. Yeah. Well, is there? At, we're coming kind of to the close of our hours. Is there anything else that you'd like to add about this topic that we haven't touched on? Oh gosh, that 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 went fast. Uh, I know, let's see. Or really fast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, there's so many different uh, follow-ons, but uh, let me think here. You know, there's 
I come back to the things of having, have perspective, uh, you know, other than your own, uh, my, my wife is, uh, originally from a different country and, uh, the perspective of someone who didn't grow up in the same culture as me is so valuable. Uh, you sometimes I go, you know, I kind of you could I still do it. I still will sometimes react instinctively and go, "What are you talking about?" But you know, for <laughs> I, I've learned over a long time being married to quickly put that away and yes. and go, "Well, let's yeah, okay, so let's and we explore." Uh, a topic and it's, it's so refreshing. It's again about, I think it does come back. I never thought of it explicit in these terms, but intellectual humility, uh, there are different perspectives on things that happen in the world on, uh, you know, what's, what's moral, what's not, uh, you name it, uh, what's good food and what's not, but you know, there's, uh, perspective having that, uh, that ties into humility uh, having an open mind, uh, thinking creatively, reserving that time for yourself to daydream, read fiction, whatever it takes to take you out of your current world and put you into someone else's shoes uh, is is really a great thing. So I'll, I'll yeah. stop at that. Well, I, I agree. And, and of course, I also, you know, share uh, my, my wife also is not from the United States and and living with someone who's from a different, you know, culture is always something that leads you to think about, oh, there's another way to do this. And of course, you know, as an anthropologist, that's been my basically bread and butter for most of my uh, career is to try to put myself in, in the shoes of someone else and say, well, how do they see the world? And it is a very humbling thing to do. You know, the more you see from someone else's perspective, the more you realize, oh, this my way is not the only way to do this. I have one more little perspective that's, I, I think, a little bit unique to my education background that, that has helped me a lot. And that is, uh, I'm basically, I think of myself as an experimental physicist. I, I'm not a, a theoretician as such. I like to go out and do experiments, do real world uh, things. And what that has deeply ingrained in me is that I don't have to have the 100% correct answer to start with. I'm quite happy to, to take a shot, get close, and then adjust and iterate based on feedback. So uh, I don't know if that's a, a widespread thing or not, but I feel like that's I've acquired that from being uh, an experimental scientist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that kind of openness to take a shot, see where it goes, and go, oh, that didn't work. Let's go over here and see where it goes. Um, yeah, I think that's it's it's powerful, and it's it's a powerful way to kind of come back and sort of it, it brings back that ability to have that kind of reflexive quality because you keep thinking, well, there must be another way to do this that might be a little better or a little different or something like that. Yeah. Well, this is uh, as always. This has been a lot of fun, Ken. I really enjoyed our conversation, and and I just want to thank you so much for uh, joining me on the New Books Network and on this podcast for How to Be Wrong. Um, as always, you know, you just have a lot of really fascinating ideas and I, I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. This is, this has been a blast and, uh, I look forward to more and more of the podcast. Thank you.